Today, I am Ira Plato. Later in the hour, does the Internet need regulation to be the open, decentralized superhighway we've grown to rely on for basic, basically everything? But first, this week in Bali, the volcano Mount Agung, I hope I'm saying that right, began to erupt again, and authorities there have evacuated over 100,000 people from the Indonesian island. And here with the details and other selected short subjects in science, this week is Amy Nordrum. She's the news editor at the IEEE Spectrum here in New York. Good to see you again, Amy. Thanks, Ira. T- tell me about this volcano. Yeah, Mount Agung is uh, currently erupting in Bali. It has been erupting all week, in fact, and basically volcanologists don't really know what to expect from this. It could continue to erupt, and it could uh, potentially get much worse, even possibly so powerful as to temporarily cool the global climate, at least for a couple of years. It could uh, dip temperatures by about a tenth of a degree to um, 0.2 degrees Celsius worldwide for the next one to two years if it continues um, in, to increase in its eruption intensity. Well, can you can you see it online? Can you actually watch it? You can see it. Yeah, there's yeah. live streams. I mean, it's many people have been evacuated from the the nearby area. Like you said, over 100,000 people uh, have been evacuated. The volcano is very dangerous as well. I mean, it's a very popular island. Um, you know, mm-hmm. many people live there as well as a lot of international tourists are visiting. And depending on how close you are, the hazards can be quite different. So if you're very very close, you could run into these very powerful pyroclastic flows, which are basically clouds of hot gas that destroy almost anything in their path. And if you're a little bit further away, you can be impacted by what are called lahars, which are these mm. big mud flows of volcanic rock that are coming down the, the side of the volcano, and those can stretch out almost 100 kilometers. And that's a part of the world where there are lots of, lots of activity, right? The planets moving around down there. Exactly. Indonesia is part of the Ring of Fire. There's more than 100 volcanoes uh, on in the country, and about 20 or 30 of those are active at any given time. So, you know, it's not it's not um, uncommon for a volcano to be acting up there, and the volcanologists in Indonesia are extremely experienced, and so are the authorities. But, you know, this one is in a very popular area, and it's a very yeah. powerful volcano. So yeah. we'll have to be watching it to see what happens. Yeah. I know another thing that you've been watching this week that that's very exciting is proton news. <laughs> Tell us why physicists are so excited about it. Absolutely. This week, uh, some physicists announced that they were able to measure the magnetic properties of protons more precisely than ever before. So they increased the precision of their measurements by a factor of 11. Um, So now it stretches out to about 11 decimal places. And this is interesting, um, first, because of the way that they had to do it. They have to actually trap individual protons uh, create a trap with electro, electrical and magnetic fields, hold it in place, and then uh, be able to measure it in order to do that. And then it's useful because it can, by comparing it to the measurements of antiprotons, uh, which are this other kind of parallel um, entity based on the standard model of, of physics that we're expecting uh, to exist in the universe, we can compare the measurements of those two and see if they align and based on the standard uh, model they should. And so far, as far as we can measure the precision of these magnetic um, protons, then we're able to to verify that that's um, the case and still existing. You know, being a big geek, I want to know the exact way you can actually hold a proton. <laughs> How do you trap it and hold it? Right. So it involves actually an electron uh, beam. So they basically have this electron gun. They shoot a beam at this piece of material. It uh, it blows these protons out of position. The, the trap that they've created with these electrical and magnetic fields can trap an individual proton. Uh, the trap actually exists of two separate traps. One is meant to measure the spin of the proton. The other, other one measures other properties. And based on the two together, they can, can figure out what's called this magnetic moment of the proton mm. that they're looking for. I can't buy one of those at Radio Shack anymore. 
No, it's quite involved, but the isolation, it only takes about 15 minutes to trap one proton. Right? So, yeah. Wow, you two for two for a half hour. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on because there's news this week about uh, how fast muscles can move. Exciting. Yeah, so certain animals um, have these really fast muscles and they use them for different purposes. So you can think about a rattlesnake shaking its rattle or you could think about a hummingbird flying around, uh, flapping its wings. Mm -hmm. And a new study out this week has uh, taken a look across the animal kingdom and tried to look at all these what's called super fast muscles and decide if there's some fundamental limit to how fast a muscle can move. And it seems that there is. All the fastest of the fastest muscles uh, top out at about 250 um, movements per second. So that seems to be the most that we can really, the fastest that we can actually get a muscle to move. And this is interesting uh, because songbirds, for example, can actually train their muscles to move faster over time. And usually when you think about you know, building something in a muscle, it's strength, but songbirds are actually able to build speed. So maybe by studying this closer, we could figure out, you know, how that works and, and what that mechanism is for making their muscles move so quickly. So, so, so what muscle moves at 250 so times the a second? Songbirds, um, the songbirds that, that vocalize their songs, they're using these muscles, oh. the bats that use it for echolocation. Um, and even fish actually have some really fast muscles that they use to produce these like hums that they use in, during their mating calls. Wow, wow, you know you know everything. <laughs> let's let's turn from fast muscles to uh, fast brain activity. Our, our attention spans, or what's going on there? Right, yeah. Some researchers at Vanderbilt University were studying macaques, which is a type of monkey, and they were interested in, um, you know, how these monkeys pay attention to different things and what happens when they shift their attention. They noticed something really strange. They noticed that in their brain scans, the neurons in the visual cortexes of these monkeys just stopped firing when they were switching attention from one task to another for about 200 milliseconds. and That's so a this, pretty long time, I mean, yeah, considering, isn't it? Right. Yeah. And so it basically means that these monkeys are going like temporarily blind when they're fo refocusing their attention. And it's not as if, you know, they notice it, but it's, um, you know, it is, like you said, a, it's not insignificant amount of time. And a similar phenomenon has actually been observed in humans. And so when we shift our attention from one task to another, it seems like a, a similar thing uh, known as attentional blink also happens. So, so actually this explains why we're really not that good at multitasking, even though we may think we are. Absolutely, yes. There is a cost to multitasking, and this is like the classic um, situation when you think about like texting and driving. I mean, how much can really happen? You're just glancing yeah. down for a second, but actually a lot can, can happen in that time. And it's really interesting to think about um, the fact that you can actually you know, go in a state of temporary blindness but really not notice it. Always good to have you. Thanks, Ira. Thanks for coming on. Amy Nordrum, news editor at the IEEE Spectrum here in New York. Now it's time to play Good Thing, Bad Thing. Because every story has a flip side. Now, deep in the remote mountains, there are legends of an elusive figure that lives in the cold, snowy wilderness. Locals and scientists have debated his existence for ages. No, I'm not talking about Santa Claus. I'm talking about the Yeti or the abominable snowman. And now researchers have analyzed nine samples supposedly left by Yeti and published their results this week in the journal The Proceedings of the Royal Society B. So, can we confirm the legend or not Yeti? Here with the envelope, please, is Stephanie Gill, a Ph.D. candidate in the Biological Sciences, University of Buffalo, who worked on the Yeti research. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. 
If, uh, Glad to be here. You know, very, very nice to have you. Uh, if there is bad news in this story, I guess it's for the fans of the Yeti, right? Yeah, unfortunately. Well, what did what happened to the samples? What did they turn out to be? They all turned out to be from local bears from the area, with the exception of one that was from a dog, actually. And and what area was that? So from the Himalaya area and the Tibetan Plateau area. Hmm. And you tested nine different Yeti samples. How did you get them? So the Icon Film Company actually approached us and said that they had these samples, and they wanted to use these samples and have us DNA test them to try and get to the bottom of this myth, or at least to hopefully illuminate some more information about this myth and see what science had to say about it. And so what kind of tests uh, did you run on them? So we extracted DNA from hair, skin, fecal matter, bone, and uh, the one tooth of a dog. Say that again, the tooth of a dog. Yes, it ended up being the tooth of a dog. It was actually a chimeric taxonomic specimen. Um, It was a stuffed yeti from the Mesner Mountain Museum. And we took hair from this supposed stuffed yeti, and we took a tooth from this supposed stuffed yeti. And the hair ended up being of Tibetan brown bear, but the tooth ended up being of a dog. I guess you, you use what you got, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, the Yeti's loss is good news for the Himalayan and Tibetan brown bears. What, what did you find out about these bears? You learned something about them. Oh, yes. So the Himalayan brown bear, now that we have sequenced the first new mitochondrial genome of them, we know that they rep- are representative of the most ancient lineage of brown bears, which is really interesting. It seems like these bears had migrated into this area, and they've been isolated ever since. And then the Tibetan brown bear, which geographically is located pretty close to Mm -hmm. the Himalayan brown bear, the two are separated by the Himalayan mountain range, they, we had, had thought that perhaps the Tibetan brown bear was more closely related to the Himalayan brown bear, but now with these better sequences, we can see that they're actually very genetically dissimilar which suggests that the Tibetan brown bear colonized that area in a separate migratory event. Wow. So so how big are the populations of these bears? So the population of the Himalayan brown bears are very small. Um, they're, they're endangered, and they're estimated to be less than 300 in the wild. Oh. Uh, so it, it has an important conservational perspective as well. Hmm. So, so now that you've given all those... Yeti folks, the bad news. Uh, what what about still Sasquatch and Bigfoot and those others? Are they they're they're distinct from Yeti, right? Or is, is the is the jury still out on those? I think that there has been some research into the Sasquatch in North America, and that they found that many samples, once the DNA was signal was sequenced, was bare. But in any case, um, certainly, if somebody wanted to do a survey of Sasquatch samples, they could take a very similar approach to what we did with the Yeti samples. Are are you asking for Sasquatch samples? If somebody wants to send us Sasquatch samples, they're welcome to, but uh, not particularly asking. Okay, we won't tell anybody. (laughs) Thank thank you very much for taking time to be with us today. Great stuff.
Thanks so much. Stephanie Gill, Ph.D. candidate in the biological sciences uh, at my alma mater, University of Buffalo. After this break, uh, President Obama's net neutrality rules could uh, be over in just a couple of weeks. What kind of Internet could we get as a result? We've got lots of guests talking about Internet neutrality after the break. You can give us, give it a, give us a call, 844-724-8255, or tweet us at SciFry, 844-724-8255. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Not quite as white hot as the tax bill being debated this week, but just as controversial in some circles is the debate over the fate of net neutrality. Those are the rules that keep your Internet service provider from putting some content, let's say Netflix, in a slower lane than, then, say, the video streaming service that they might own. The Federal Communications Commission is on track to roll back the 2015 rules relating to net neutrality oh, in a couple of weeks. FCC Commissioner Ajit Pai, defending the proposal repeal, has said the Internet wasn't broken in 2015, so why were these, quote, burdensome regulations necessary at all? He also said that unless rules might be stifling, he also said the rules might be stifling the very competition many people feel that the market needs. Uh, we actually asked uh, him to come on the program, and uh, we, so far... Uh, he has not taken advantage of our invitation. So just what is net neutrality and what does the proposed repeal mean for your favorite Netflix or Amazon show? What do small startup companies have to fear from net neutrality? And since broadband Internet service is already controlled by virtual monopolies, how many cable companies or Internet providers do you get to choose from today? One or two? Well, does the average consumer actually have any choice? whether the Internet is, quote, neutral or not. What difference does that make? That's what we're going to be talking about today. We'd like to hear from you. Our number, 844-724-8255, 844-724-8255. Also, you can tweet us at SciFry. Let me introduce my guests to start things off. Gigi Sohn, a former counselor for the FCC who helped create the 2015 rules. Tim Wu, a law professor at Columbia, creator of the term net neutrality. And John Brodkin, senior IT reporter at Oris Technica. Welcome to Science Friday, all of you. Thanks. Great to be right. here. Nice to have you. Uh, Tim, as the person who invented the term net neutrality back in, oh, that ancient year of 2003, remind folks at home what it is we're actually talking about. Yeah, so I think it's not that, that complicated. It just says that your users have right to get the, the, the content that they want, use the applications they want, attach what they want to their uh, connection. So it says that the the the, the carrier, you know, the phone companies, cable companies, can't block stuff, uh, can't throttle you know, Netflix, and can't uh, upgrade some stuff and downgrade other stuff. So it's a sort of fairly basic principles. Mm -hmm. And and Zishi, uh, Ajit Pai is uh, proposing to do away with the FCC's authority to regulate this. What exactly would this change in the law regarding internet service providers? How would that change? So basically what the chairman has proposed is three things. First, he's proposed to deregulate broadband. So in other words, right now, as a result of the 2015 order that I was a part of, Internet access, and we're not talking about the Internet. Let, let's clarify that. We're talking about the on-ramps to the Internet provided by companies like Comcast and AT&T and Verizon and Charter. We said that those companies were like utilities, right? Mm -hmm. They were essential part 
of, of the American economy, of American culture, and they needed to be regulated as such. So he's going to reverse that decision and essentially deregulate them. And, and that's very important for, for a number of reasons, the most important of which is that the FCC, when this is adopted or if this is adopted uh, on December 14th, will have no oversight whatsoever over the broadband market. So that's the first thing that he's doing. The second thing that he's doing, and it follows from the first, is that he is eliminating the rules that Tim talked about, the prohibition against blocking, against throttling, against fast and slow lanes. He's leaving in a rule that says that broadband providers have to tell you that they're blocking, that they're throttling, and that they're providing slow lanes. And last but not least, and this is really makes it even worse, he is preempting the states. He is saying that we are not only going to deregulate, the federal government's not only going to deregulate, but the states can do no more than what the federal government is doing. The states cannot protect consumers and competition either. Hmm. Uh, John, what, what do you say about that? Uh, well, that's correct. He's removing the authority to regulate broadband providers as common carriers. And um, I mean, the first, the, the core net neutrality rules prevent ISPs from blocking, throttling traffic, or from charging for so-called fast lanes. And then there are other things like um, there, there are rules that you have to disclose certain things to consumers, like how data caps will affect them and, you know, all the hidden fees they might see. And there are certain legal rights that consumers have under this statute, such as the right to sue in cases of unfair or unjust, um, sorry, no, unjust or unreasonable behavior. Mm. So that right to a lawsuit yeah. over general yeah. behavior would go away. Uh, Tim, uh, Pai and is yes, also... The, uh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, and the, uh, yeah, the state thing is he, he's trying to overturn or prevent states from imposing their own net neutrality rules, but I'd expect that would be challenged in court, among other things. Mm -hmm. uh, Tim Wu, Pai has also said net neutrality is a solution, quote, in search of a problem that the Internet wasn't broken in 2015, so why require new regulations? Um, but, but, Tim, you were talking about net neutrality way back in 2003, so how do we actually get here? Yeah, this is a, a piece of deliberate revisionist history. Um, I, I want to be very serious about this. This is a radical change. Um, it undoes decades of FCC oversight of, of the phone and, and cable companies and leaves them, as Gigi was saying, just free to do whatever they want as anti-competitive or anti-consumer as it may be. You know, the first concern, I was doing research on this earlier, the FCC actually first got interested in this in the 70s when it was worried that AT&T then the monopolist was going to kill the first online service providers. Very early stuff like CompuServe. It at least dates, you know, net modern net neutrality dates to 2004 when the Bush administration uh, was concerned about uh, phone companies blocking voice over IP. That's extremely anti-competitive. Uh, you know, without net neutrality rules, Netflix would have been killed, uh, you know, from the get-go, obviously. Why would cable companies allow Netflix to exist? So, you know, he's talking about allowing a power to block which has not been tolerated since even the 70s and it's a radical change which is one of the reasons I think it's going to have a tough time in the courts. Mm -hmm. uh, John, uh, uh, do, you, do, do we have any evidence that the ISPs actually want to put in these so-called fast lanes or slow lanes? Didn't we hear Comcast and Charter say things earlier that may have changed their minds? Well, Comcast had been saying for years on its webpage that I think the exact quote was, we do not do paid prioritization or fast lanes. And then I 
um, figured out this week that on April 26, the day Chairman Pai released his plan to repeal net neutrality, Comcast deleted that commitment from its webpage. Now, they're still saying they have no plans to do paid prioritization, but um, you know, pulling back from the commitment, that makes it easier for them to do it later, because if they promise something and then fail to uphold that promise, the Federal Trade Commission could step in. And just as a final point, um, remember that in uh, 2008, Comcast was um, punished by the FCC for blocking or throttling BitTorrent. And then the FCC's order was overturned in court when Comcast sued. And then ultimately, that is what led to the FCC implementing net neutrality rules. Yeah, can I jump in here and talk about that solution problem thing? Uh, the, the Comcast, the other companies have a long history of blocking stuff. That, that they don't want. Comcast actually blocked VPNs in the early 2000s. AT&T didn't want Wi-Fi devices to be attached. Uh, that, uh, as you said, Comcast blocked peer-to-peer uh, -peer uh, peer -peer video. Uh, uh, th there was blocking by AT&T of, of Skype on, I on the iPhones. So there's a long history, and there's no reason to expect they wouldn't want to do more blocking in the future. I mean, it, if, if you're a cable company, why do you want Netflix to succeed? Why do you want some new challenger to c come at you, it, it, they have a lot of reasons to want to block or throttle. But but if I can get back to the fast lanes, so uh, the FCC in 2010 adopted the first set of net neutrality rules, and when the case went to court, Verizon's lawyers stood up in open court and said, this is what my client wants to do. Right. And if you look at the record of this proceeding, this new proceeding to repeal net neutrality, AT&T says, this is what we want to do. And if you read the draft order that Chairman Pai has put out, it is a golden invitation to do fast lanes. Now, they use different language, right? They use language like innovative business models and two-sided markets, but they're all talking about the same thing, that some online providers can pay for faster and better service, and those without money go to the slow lane. Mm -hmm. Let me see if I can get a call in before we have to uh, go to a break. Let's go to Amy in Manhattan. Hi, Amy. <laughs> Hi. Um, I know that in some uh, areas of, uh, well, not internet only, but by phone, um, there are alternative services. Like if you don't like uh, the way Google operates, uh, there's, there are services like DuckDuckGo. Um, and uh, for phone service, uh, there's Quido. Um, and I wonder if there are any prospects for uh, alternatives to the, the big ISPs. Mm, good question. Uh, Good question, because half the country only is allowed one ISP, and the other half has a choice between two. Well, it's actually worse than that. So by Chairman Pai's own numbers, 58% of census blocks in this country have zero or one Internet access provider at the speeds the FCC considers broadband, and 87% have two or fewer. So there's no competition. And if, again, I can refer back to this decision that's going to be voted on on December 14th, the chairman not only proposes that two is fine, he actually also says monopoly is fine. I think the American people wouldn't agree with that. Mm -hmm. uh, Tim, you said in the New York Times op-ed that the courts will be left to decide on net neutrality. What do you think they will say? Well, I think they're going to strike down this, uh, this if it passes, this rule. Um, you know, th there's uh, principles of administrative law that say that courts can't... Uh, jettison something that's been relied on for, for a very long time, uh, unless there's a good reason, usually a change in conditions. And, you know, this, this policy has been a great success. Internet economy is the go golden goose of the U.S. economy. It's uh, been that way for, for a while. And so 
you know, he needs a good justification. I don't think he's got much. His biggest claim is that, you know, cable and phone companies aren't making enough money, uh, that they need to make even more uh, because they need greater incentives to invest. I, I think he's got an uphill battle and uh, that uh, the panel may strike it down. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff, uh, uh, Tim, I know you have to go, so I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today. Sure. Thank Tim Mu, law professor at Columbia and coiner of the term net neutrality. I want to bring on another guest for a moment. Back in the spring when the FCC first proposed repealing net neutrality, they opened it up for public comment and they received millions of comments for and against net neutrality. But data scientists pouring through the responses have noticed a funny thing. Besides the usual form letters from online campaigns, a huge percentage of those comments, hundreds of thousands, appear to be from bots. Here to explain more is Jeff Cowey, data research, a scientist, uh, data scientist based in the Bay Area and the author of one of the most recent analyses. Jeff, welcome to Science Friday. Thanks, Art. How do you spot a bot in all of these comments? Well, I think um, one important thing to note is that, you know, when you're just looking at the text, it's, it's very difficult to tell, you know, between one comment and another um, whether it's fake or not. But when you look at the distribution of a set of comments, um, it's it's fairly easy to tell, you know, wh whether something was, uh, I guess, you know, a naturally occurring, naturally distributed uh, set of comments, or something that seems more artificial that was placed there intentionally. Mm -hmm. Now, the the FCC says it's aware of the bots and it's claiming that's a reason to dismiss the comments process entirely. That the most quote suspicious activity was that supporting internet regulation, or net neutrality. Well, what do you think? Yeah, um, to be honest, I don't really see the evidence for that. Um, so first of all, you know, uh, granted there there are comments, uh, you know, on both sides that appear to be faked, you know, that I will, you know, accept as true. However, you know, there's internet platforms out there whose, um, you know, whose very survival depends on, you know, weeding out the bad comments from good. And, you know, there's methodologies out there, you know, some of which I've used mm -hmm. to weed out the bad from the good. And, you know, you can still come to the conclusion that, you know, there's a certain preponderance of the public that feels a certain way about the issue. Amira Plato, this is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. Uh, and, and as a follow-up, it, it's important to note that those that have been identified as bots have also used real people's email addresses. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, you know, that that is very concerning. And, uh, you know, the fact that they don't try uh, at all to separate the good from the bad is, is, you know, also very concerning. I mean, all of us have a little bit of public information out there. And the fact that uh, it could be used uh, for this purpose, um, you know, we should all, you know, try to figure out whether, you know, our information was used. I've heard of a lot of people since I've published this report that, you know, reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I got a letter from my congressman thanking me for, you know, submitting a comment, and they, you know, never actually did in the first mm -hmm. place. So you know, there's a lot. Yeah, I got some of those same here. emails from people, yeah, actually. Exactly. Yeah. Gigi, how much weight do these comments tend to have with the FCC anyway? Well, they have a lot of weight, as they should. And I think it's very unfortunate that the chairman has decided that legitimate one-page comments are not important in his mind. They're really important, and a lot of those one-page comments, I've actually taken the time to look through the docket because I wrote a piece about how you can write an effective uh, FCC comment in the net neutrality proceeding. And I actually saw quite a few people write on that subject, write, actually follow some of my template. And those go to the actual merits of this proceeding. The, what the chairman is saying here 
is if the document isn't produced by a law firm or lawyers, I'm not going to even look at it. So what he's doing by, number one, ignoring these fake comments, and number two, disregarding short comments, is he is putting his case more in peril than it already is. I mean, a court is going to look at this process and say, why didn't you investigate this? Mm -hmm. You know, why didn't you try to weed out what was false and what isn't? They've basically said, the FCC has basically said, we don't have the resources, we're not going to bother, and we don't care about short comments anyway, which is the the complete opposite, I might say, uh, of what we did when we had 4 million comments in 2014 and 2015. So so it is possible, and I'll bring Jeff in on this too, it is possible to, to, to weed out uh, the, the bot comments. Yeah, um, you know, based on the text, I think you can at least get sort of a level of certainty about each block or campaign of comments that's submitted. And, you know, from my research, what I found was, you know, the more certain you were about the authenticity of the comments, the more likely the commenter was to support net neutrality. Um, and so, you know, that, I think, you know, obviously this is a sort of a surface investigation, but it only means that we should really dig deeper on this and try to figure out what's, what's going on here and what's at the heart of, you know, these decisions by the FCC chair. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to let, uh, let Jeff go. Uh, thank you for taking time to be with us today, Jeff. Thanks, Sarah. Jeff Cow is a data scientist based in the Bay Area, author of a new analysis of FCC comments on net neutrality. Uh, we're going to still continue after the break with uh, Gigi Son and uh, John Brodkin, and we'll return after the break with more on the end, perhaps, for net neutrality as we know it. Our number, 844-724-8255. You can also tweet us at SciFry. Stay with us. We've got lots more after the break. You're listening to Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're talking about uh, net neutrality with my guest, Gigi Son, fellow at Georgetown Law former counselor of the FCC back when the 2015 net neutrality rules were first drafted. John Brodkin, senior IT reporter for Ars Technica. He's been covering this issue closely. We've got lots of phone calls, lots of questions, lots of tweets coming in. Um, Let's see if I can get to some of those. Uh, Let me go from uh, Amy tweets in, would the end of net net neutrality allow net providers to block the transmission of messages or messengers that they don't agree with? Um, Gigi, John? Yeah, uh, yes. I, I mean, the answer I... is absolutely yes. I mean, there would be no protection uh, against that. I will say I'm not as concerned about blocking as I am about fast lanes and throttling. But, yes, it would be possible because there would be no oversight for that. Now, let's go out to uh, then a question from Brian in Bushwick, New York, about this. Hi, Brian. Hi, how are you? Uh, great show. I'm really glad to hear about it because I've been hearing so much about net neutrality. Um, my question was, um, you all are really, really impressive like with the knowledge and, and the kind of arguments you're making, but um, as a consumer of the Internet, I was just really wondering if you could um, speak about very specific like specific things that are going to affect the consumer. Like I, I um, you know, subscribe to Netflix, I want to use the internet to sometimes sell things on certain sites. Um, friends of mine, like, you know, go to bandcamp.com, you know, and I've been hearing that that's going to be charged for just to enter the site. And I, so I was just wondering for a basic mm. user, like, what, if you could give a few examples, even your own, of just, like, what's going to be a problem for us? Good question. John, you want to well, tackle that first? Yeah. 
Yeah, there's one good example back around 2013. For many months, Com um, Netflix was extremely slow on Comcast, Time Warner Cable, Verizon, and AT&T. And the reason was Netflix was having these disputes over whether they should have to pay for what's called network interconnection. It's a direct connection to the network. Um, so that went on for a while, and it didn't end until Netflix paid the ISPs. So what the rules did, it didn't outlaw that sort of payment, but now there is a complaint process that basically prevents those disputes from getting out of hand and actually harming consumers. So since the rules went into place in 2015, this problem has basically disappeared. But that complaint process is going to go away, and so if there are future disputes between, it probably won't be Netflix next time, but someone else and the ISPs, there basically wouldn't be anything to stop those disputes from harming customers. Can I give an example, sure. Ira? Well, so let's say you're a small business and you sell chocolates, okay? And Godiva sells chocolates. Godiva can pay to get faster service to the customer, okay? You, as the small person, let's say you're in Utah, probably not going to have that kind of money to pay. So your website is going to come up slower than Godiva's. And there's already been a lot of studies done about how long people will wait for websites to load. It's like three seconds. So you ought to be at a distinct disadvantage in that regard. And imagine if you're a startup and you go to an investor and you say, I, I've got this great online business and the first thing I have to do is negotiate carriage with every single internet service provider in the country. What do you think that investor is going to say to you? Probably going to say, bye-bye. I'm not going to invest in you. Wow. And, and uh, so what are, how do we get competition here? Is there any way to encourage more competition? Well, I think John and I are both big fans of communities building their own broadband. Uh, unfortunately, state legislatures in about half the states in the nation have prohibited their local communities from, from determining their broadband future. I think those laws definitely have to go. I do see, you know, in the absence of other more radical regulation, which I don't think this FCC is going to do, I think that's really the best hope for any competition. John, There's also one other thing that might help, but of course it's not an immediate thing. There are several companies, including SpaceX, that are developing a new kind of satellite system that could be much better than the current ones. They, the satellites would be closer to the Earth and therefore there'd be fewer delays in transmissions. Um, if that ends up coming to fruition a few years from now, you could finally have some real competition against the cable and fiber providers. But, mm. I mean, I, I couldn't predict whether that will really um, take off. What, what, what about this the, the new 5G service that's supposed to be really fast? So, so 5G well, is provided by the same mobile wireless providers. But I, I, have to, I have to put a word of caution. As I agree with John like 99.9% .9 of the time. You know, you know, we like to talk about all these new technologies that are coming down the pike. But until they're actually on the ground and working, I think we have to be careful about, you know, doing any kind of competition analysis. There used to be something back in the day, only about 10 years ago, called broadband over power lines, where we were going to get our broadband over the same lines that provide our electricity. And the FCC actually deregulated, in part, based on the, the coming arrival of broadband over power lines. And guess what? 
Nobody has broadband over power lines. So I would love to see, you know, satellite become more reliable. Again, 5G is super fast mobile, but still delivered by the same companies. Um, but it's still not here yet. And while I'd love to see it thrive, I don't think we should be making policy based on its arrival. One of the one of the questions, though, as as everybody who's on the internet, almost everybody is on the internet, is whether the internet should be regulated like, like an essential utility, our water, our power. You know, well, shouldn't everybody be guaranteed good access to the internet? Um, what's the case for Facebook, for example, access being an essential as essential as electricity? Uh. I don't know. I don't consider Facebook that essential. <laughs> well, but the point being that, you know, uh, just about everything we're going to be consuming, and you have Apple and these other companies saying they're going to start providing digital services, uh, they, they, there'll be no living without it. Uh, look, I think it's really important, Ira, to distinguish between Internet access and services like Facebook, like Google, like eBay, that ride on on the network, on the edge of the network. As powerful as Facebook and Google and Amazon are, they don't provide access to the internet. And I do think that those, including Chairman Pai, uh, who want to repeal the net neutrality rules are trying to change the conversation. Uh, Chairman Pai gave right. two remarkable speeches last week, basically saying, all the problems are Twitter's fault, okay? Twitter has nothing to do with net neutrality. Google has nothing to do with net neutrality. Net neutrality is about the on-ramps to the Internet that are highly consolidated, that serve this gatekeeper role, and whether they should be able to favor or discriminate. So people need to keep their eye on the ball. You know, folks have a lot of problems with what some of the big tech companies are doing, but that's a separate conversation that is not going to be handled at the Federal Communications Commission. Well, is the FCC the right person then, or the right no. organization to regulate this? Where should it be? Well, I think you've got to shore up antitrust laws. And there's a big conversation going on in the country right now about whether our antitrust laws are, are good enough and strong enough. And I don't believe they are. I do, I do believe those need to be strengthened. Privacy is a major problem, control of data. You know, those are the kind of conversations that we need to have in Congress uh, and we need to have at antitrust authorities. But the Federal Communications Commission was set up in 1934 to regulate networks, okay? not to regulate the content that rides over those networks. And I'd like to keep it that way. That might not sound that might sound weird for, mm -hmm. you know, a liberal like me. But I think the FCC does just fine regulating the networks. The worst part of this whole thing is that if Pi's plan passes, then the FCC will have no oversight over access to the most important network of our lifetimes. And it, it really shouldn't be that way. And so who would? No one? Yeah. Well, can I point? Um, he, he says the Federal Trade Commission will step in and um, using the antitrust laws and, you know, forcing companies to keep their promises. But in the case of Comcast throttling BitTorrent, he says that that should have been handled as an FTC issue, but that happened in the real world, and we know that the FTC did nothing. So, I, I mean, even his example of how the Federal Trade Commission could regulate has already been disproven. Okay, we've, we've 
we've run out of time for this hour, but we will pick this up again. I want to thank both of you for taking time to be with us today. Gigi Sohn, fellow at uh, Georgetown Law, former counselor of the FCC. John Brodkin, senior IT reporter for Ars Technica. He's now, he's been covering this issue very closely. Thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you. Elsewhere in Washington, tax legislation is moving through Congress with the Senate possibly moving to a vote on their version of a tax bill. Even as we speak, perhaps sometime today, the House passed their tax bill earlier in mid-November. House Republicans say their bill will simplify the tax code. But one group of taxpayers could find their tax obligations dramatically increasing under that plan and talking about graduate students. Joining me to talk about the House tax plan and its tax plan and its effects on grad students is Kathy Shield. She is a grad student herself in nuclear engineering at UC Berkeley, and she's one of the students behind an online calculator that grad students can use to run the numbers on the House plan. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So you have an app for that, how to run the numbers to see what your your increase in taxes. Let's back up a bit and say, why will grad students be seeing an increase in taxes? Well, it comes down to a change in the language um, in terms of how our tuition exemptions are going to be considered under taxes. So right now, most graduate students get their tuition paid on their behalf by their department or by their uh, research advisor. And right now, that money, which is money we never see, is not taxed. But under the House plan, uh, that's going to change, and we're going to get taxed on the tuition money that we never see that never goes into our pockets. And how much of an increase are we talking about? Well, for some students, it could be thousands of dollars because we get, like, for example, I have a $35,000 a year stipend and my university's tuition is $17,000 a year. So I would be taxed on an additional almost $20,000. At private universities across the country where tuition is significantly more, some students are going to see their effective taxable income more than double. Hmm. So to be clear, this language is in the House version of the bill, but not the Senate version. Correct. Is there any hope of of the senators saying, let's get rid of this? Well, right now it's not in the Senate version, and there have been some senators, including Ted Cruz, for example, who have indicated that they don't want to see this impact on grad students in the final language of the bill, Mm -hmm. Um, which next what happens after the Senate passes their language, then uh, both the House and the Senate language go into committee, and they'll have to figure out how to reconcile the differences. So at this point, we are hoping as graduate students that first the language stays out of the Senate bill that gets passed, and then second, that it doesn't get into the final language. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. Talking with the two-year grad, second-year grad student, Kathy Shield. Okay, let's talk about your online calculator. We have a link for it up on our website. Uh, how did how did how do you use it, and how deep did you have to dig into tax law to draw that up? Yeah, so to use it, it just asks a few simple questions about the stipend that you receive as a graduate student. Uh, the tuition at your university, and then a few questions about some other quirks of how you get paid, whether you pay your health insurance, are you on a fellowship, things like that. Um, and for figuring out how how to actually put the calculator, calculator together, a colleague of mine, Vetri Villan, uh, who's in the physics department here at UC Berkeley, 
he and I looked through the language that currently exists in tax law and the language in the House in the House tax bill to figure out how changes are going to be made. Hmm. How did it get started, this project? Uh, well, when we first heard about um, the fact that this, it seems like a really minor change. It's just one, like, clause in one part of the tax code. When we saw that it included impacts on graduate students, um, Vetri just kind of pulled this math together. He said, I want to know what the impact is going to be on me. Um, and then what what happened from there, we wanted to make it, turn it into a tool that would be useful for other students to be able to figure out what their personal impacts would be. And so we made this simple calculator. So what are, the, what are students going to do if they actually have to pay this extra tax? Do they have to take a loan out? or? Yeah, it really depends on the students. So I've talked to students who are anticipating needing to take loans out. I've talked to students who are from other countries who are saying, I'm just going to go back to my home country and maybe finish my education there. Um, unfortunately, the impact is going to be hardest on students that are from lower socioeconomic statuses because they're going to have a harder time getting loans if that's what they need to do or finding other options and other opportunities. Do you think this has uh, changed your career a bit for you, where you'd like to be headed? Um, for me personally, I, I don't think it'll change my career. It has um, solidified, kind of this conversation has solidified my commitment to making sure that scientists are engaged in the policy making process um, because it's a really important thing to keep in mind that science should be included in the conversations and this is a really clear example of what happens if we don't talk about science. Mm, so you have started the conversation with your folks, yeah? Yeah. yeah well, thank you very much for explaining it uh, to us and being a guest today. Kathy Shield, grad student in nuclear engineering, of all things, at UC Berkeley. And you'll find a link to the online tax calculator on our website at sciencefriday.com. Thanks again. Thank you. One last thing before we go. We need your help to celebrate the top science stories of 2017. Now, over the next two weeks, we'll be collecting voicemail messages from you, our listeners, so you can tell us what science story this year mattered most to you and why. Now, we have set up a special voicemail box. Here's the number. Pencils ready. 567-243-2456. Let me repeat that again. 567-243-2456. What science story this year mattered most to you? And please try to keep it under 30 seconds. I'll give you the number again. 567 243 2456. And when you tune in to Science Friday on December 29th, we hope we'll, you'll hear us playing your message on the air. 567 243 2456. Keep it a bit brief. And thank you. That's about all the time we have today. Charles Berkwist is our director, senior producer, Christopher Taliata. Our producers are Alexa Lim, Christy Taylor, and Katie Heiler. We had technical and engineering help today from Rich Kim, Sarah Fishman, and Jack Horowitz. We're active all week on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, Amazon Echo and Google Home. So you can listen to us every day. Every day is Science Friday. And of course, our email address, scifry at sciencefriday.com, Facebook, Twitter, everything else. I'm Ira Flato in New York. You're listening to Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're talking about uh, net neutrality with my guest, Gigi Sohn, fellow at Georgetown Law, former counselor of the FCC back when the 2015 net neutrality rules were first drafted. 
John Bradkin, senior IT reporter for Ars Technica. He's been covering this issue closely. We've got lots of phone calls, lots of questions, lots of tweets coming in. Um, let's see if I can get to some of those. Uh, let me go from uh, Amy tweets in, would the end of net neutrality, uh, net neutrality allow net providers to block the transmission of messages or messengers that they don't agree with? Um, Gigi, John? Yeah. Uh, yes. I, I mean, the answer I, is absolutely yes. I mean, there would be no protection uh, against that. I will say I'm not as concerned about blocking as I am about fast lanes and throttling. But yes, it would be possible because there would be no oversight for that. Now, let's go out to uh, then a question from Brian in Bushwick, New York, about this. Hi, Brian. Hi, how are you? Uh, great show. I'm really glad to hear about it because I've been hearing so much about net neutrality. Um, my question was... Um, you all are really, really impressive, like with the knowledge and, and the kind of arguments you're making. But um, as a consumer of the internet, I was just really wondering if you could um, speak about very specific, like specific things that are going to affect the consumer. Like I, I, um, you know, subscribe to Netflix. I want to use the internet to sometimes sell things on certain sites. Um, friends of mine, like you know, go to bandcamp.com, you know, and I've been hearing that that's going to be charged for just to enter the site. And so I was just wondering for a basic mm. user, like what, if you could give a few examples, even your own, of just like what's going to be a problem for us. Good question. John, you want to well, tackle that first? Yeah. Yeah, there's one good example back around 2013 for many months. Com um, Netflix was extremely slow on Comcast, Time Warner Cable, Verizon, and AT&T. And the reason was Netflix was having these disputes over whether they should have to pay for what's called network interconnection. It's a direct connection to the network. Um, so that went on for a while, and it didn't end until Netflix paid the ISPs. So what the rules did, it didn't outlaw that sort of payment, but now there is a complaint process that basically prevents those disputes from getting out of hand and actually harming consumers. So since the rules went into place in 2015, this problem has basically disappeared. But that complaint process is going to go away. And so if there are future disputes between, it probably won't be Netflix next time, but someone else and the ISPs, there basically wouldn't be anything to stop those disputes from harming customers. Can I give an example, sure. Ira? Well, so let's say you're a small business and you sell chocolates, okay? And Godiva sells chocolates. Godiva can pay to get faster service to the customer, okay? You, as the small person, let's say you're in Utah, probably not going to have that kind of money to pay. So your website is going to come up slower than Godiva's. And there's already been a lot of studies done about how long people will wait for websites to load. It's like three seconds. So you ought to be at a distinct disadvantage in that regard. And imagine if you're a startup and you go to an investor and you say, I, I've got this great online business and the first thing I have to do is negotiate carriage with every single internet service provider in the country. What do you think that investor is going to say to you? Probably going to say, bye-bye, I'm not going to invest in you. Wow. And, and uh, so what are, how do we get competition here? Is there any way to encourage more competition? Well, I think John and I are both big fans of communities building their own broadband. 
unfortunately, state legislatures in about half the states in the nation have prohibited their local communities from, de from determining their broadband future. I think those laws definitely have to go. I do see, you know, in the absence of other more radical regulation, which I don't think this FCC is going to do, I think that's really the best hope for any competition. John, There's also one other thing that might help, but of course it's not an immediate thing. There are several companies, including SpaceX, that are developing a new kind of satellite system that could be much better than the current ones. They, the satellites would be closer to the Earth, and therefore there'd be fewer delays in transmissions. Um, if that ends up coming to fruition a few years from now, you could finally have some real competition against the cable and fiber providers. But mm. I mean, I, I couldn't predict whether that will really um, take off. What, what, what about this, the, the new 5G service that's supposed to be really fast? So, fi so 5G well, is provided by the same mobile wireless providers. But I, I, have to, I have to put a word of caution. As I agree with John like 99.9% .9 of the time. You know, you know, we like to talk about all these new technologies that are coming down the pike. But until they're actually on the ground and working, I think we have to be careful about, you know, doing any kind of competition analysis. There used to be something back in the day, only about 10 years ago, called broadband over power lines, where we were going to get our broadband over the same lines that provide our electricity. And the FCC actually deregulated, in part, based on the, the coming arrival of broadband over power lines. And guess what? Nobody has broadband over power lines. So I would love to see you know, satellite become more reliable. Again, 5G is super fast mobile, but still delivered by the same companies. Um, but it's still not here yet. And while I'd love to see it thrive, I don't think we should be making policy based on its arrival. One of the, one of the questions, though, is, is everybody who's on the Internet, almost everybody is on the Internet, is whether the Internet should be regulated like, like an essential utility, our water, our power. You know, well, shouldn't everybody be guaranteed good access to the Internet? Um, what's the case for Facebook, for example, access being an essential, as essential as electricity? Uh, I don't know. I don't consider Facebook <laughs> that essential. <laughs> well, but the point being that, you know, uh, just about everything we're going to be consuming, and you have Apple and these other companies saying they're going to start providing digital services, uh, they, they, there'll be no living without it. Uh, look, I think it's really important, Ira, to distinguish between Internet access and services like Facebook, like Google, like eBay that ride on, on the network, on the edge of the network. As powerful as Facebook and Google and Amazon are, they don't provide access to the Internet. And I do think that those, including Chairman Pai, uh, who want to repeal the net neutrality rules are trying to change the conversation. Uh, Chairman Pai gave right. two remarkable speeches last week, basically saying all the problems are Twitter's fault, okay? Twitter has nothing to do with net neutrality. Google has nothing to do with net neutrality. Net neutrality is about the on-ramps to the Internet that are highly consolidated, that serve this gatekeeper role, and whether they should be able to favor or discriminate. So people need to keep their eye on the ball. You know, folks have a lot of problems with what some of the big tech companies are doing but that's a separate conversation 
that is not going to be handled at the Federal Communications Commission. Well, is the FCC the right person then, or the right no. organization to regulate this? Where should it be? Well, I think you've got to shore up antitrust laws. And there's a big conversation going on in the country right now about whether our antitrust laws are, are good enough and strong enough. And I don't believe they are. I do, I do believe those need to be strengthened. Privacy is a major problem, control of data. You know, those are the kind of conversations that we need to have in Congress uh, and we need to have at antitrust authorities. But the Federal Communications Commission was set up in 1934 to regulate networks. Okay, not to regulate the content that rides over those networks. And I'd like to keep it that way. That might not sound that might sound weird for, mm -hmm. you know, a liberal like me, but I think the FCC does just fine regulating the networks. The worst part of this whole thing is that if Pi's plan passes, then the FCC will have no oversight over access to the most important network of our lifetimes. And it, it really shouldn't be that way. And so who would? No one? Yeah. Well, can I point, um, he, he says the Federal Trade Commission will step in and um, using the antitrust laws and, you know, forcing companies to keep their promises. But in the case of Comcast throttling BitTorrent, he says that that should have been handled as an FTC issue. But that happened in the real world, and we know that the FTC did nothing. So, I, I mean, even his example of how the Federal Trade Commission could regulate has already been disproven. Okay, we've we've we, we've run out of time for this hour, but we will pick this up again. I want to thank both of you for taking time to be with us today. Gigi Sohn, fellow at the Georgetown Law, former counselor of the FCC. John Brodkin, senior IT reporter for Ars Technica. He's now he well, he's been covering this issue very closely. Thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Great to be here. Thanks. You're thank welcome. you. Elsewhere in Washington, tax legislation is moving through Congress with the Senate possibly moving to a vote on their version of a tax bill. Even as we speak, perhaps sometime today, the House passed their tax bill earlier in mid-November. House Republicans say their bill will simplify the tax code. But one group of taxpayers could find their tax obligations dramatically increasing under that plan and talking about graduate students. Joining me to talk about the House tax plan and its tax plan and its effects on grad students is Kathy Shield. She is a grad student herself in nuclear engineering at UC Berkeley, and she's one of the students behind an online calculator that grad students can use to run the numbers on the House plan. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So you have an app for that, how to run the numbers to see what your, your increase in taxes. Let's back up a bit and say, why will grad students be seeing an increase in taxes? Well, it comes down to a change in the language um, in terms of how our tuition exemptions are going to be considered under taxes. So right now, most graduate students get their tuition paid on their behalf by their department or by their uh, research advisor. And right now, that money, which is money we never see, is not taxed. But under the House plan, uh, that's going to change, and we're going to get taxed on the tuition money that we never see that never goes into our pockets. And how much of an increase are we talking about? Well, for some students, it could be thousands of dollars because we get, like, for example, I have a $35,000 a year stipend and my university's tuition is $17,000 a year. So I would be taxed on an additional almost $20,000. At private universities across the country where tuition is significantly more, 
some students are going to see their effective taxable income more than double. Hmm. So to be clear, this language is in the House version of the bill, but not the Senate version. Correct. Is there any hope uh, of, of the senators saying, let's get rid of this? Well, right now it's not in the Senate version, and there have been some senators, including Ted Cruz, for example, who have indicated that they don't want to see this impact on grad students in the final language of the bill, mm -hmm. um, which next what happens after the Senate passes their language, then uh, both the House and the Senate language go into committee, and they'll have to figure out how to reconcile the differences. So at this point, we are hoping as graduate students that first, the language stays out of the Senate bill that gets passed, and then second, that it doesn't get into the final language. This is Science Friday from PRI Public Radio International, talking with a two-year grad, second-year grad student Kathy Shield. Okay, let's talk about your online calculator. We have a link for it up on our website. Uh, how did how did how do you use it, and how deep did you have to dig into tax law to draw that up? Yeah, so to use it, it just asks a few simple questions about the stipend that you receive as a graduate student, uh, the tuition at your university, and then a few questions about some other quirks of how you get paid, whether you pay your health insurance, are you on a fellowship, things like that. Um, and for figuring out how, how to actually put the calculator, calculator together, a colleague of mine, Vetri Villan, uh, who's in the physics department here at UC Berkeley, he and I looked through the language that currently exists in tax law and the language in the House in the House tax bill to figure out how changes are going to be made. Hmm. How did it get started, this project? Uh, well, when we first heard about um, the fact that this, it seems like a really minor change. It's just one, like, clause in one part of the tax code. When we saw that it included impacts on graduate students, um, Vetri just kind of pulled this math together. He said, I want to know what the impact is going to be on me. Um, and then what, what happened from there, we wanted to make it, turn it into a tool that would be useful for other students to be able to figure out what their personal impacts would be. And so we made this simple calculator. So what are, the, what are students going to do if they actually have to pay this extra tax? Do they have to take a loan out or...? Yeah, it really depends on the student. So I've talked to students who are anticipating needing to take loans out. I've talked to students who are from other countries who are saying, I'm just going to go back to my home country and maybe finish my education there. Um, unfortunately, the impact is going to be hardest on students that are from lower socioeconomic statuses because they're going to have a harder time getting loans if that's what they need to do or finding other options and other opportunities. Do you think this has uh, changed your career a bit for you, where you'd like to be headed? Um, for me personally, I, I don't think it'll change my career. It has um, solidified, kind of this conversation has solidified my commitment to making sure that scientists are engaged in the policymaking process. Um, because it's a really important thing to keep in mind that science should be included in the conversations, and this is a really clear example of what happens if we don't talk about science. Mm. So you have started the conversation with your folks, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much for explaining it uh, to us and being a guest today. Kathy Shield, grad student in nuclear engineering, of all things, at UC Berkeley. <laughs> And you'll find a link to the online tax calculator on our website at sciencefriday.com. Thanks again. Thank you. 
One last thing before we go. We need your help to celebrate the top science stories of 2017. Now, over the next two weeks, we'll be collecting voicemail messages from you, our listeners, so you can tell us what science story this year mattered most to you and why. Now, we have set up a special voicemail box. Here's the number. Pencils ready. 567-243-2456. Let me repeat that again. 567-243-2456. What science story this year mattered most to you? And please try to keep it under 30 seconds. I'll give you the number again. 567-243-2456. And when you tune in to Science Friday on December 29th, we hope we'll, you'll hear us playing your message on the air. 567 567- Two four three two four five six. Keep it a bit brief. And thank you. That's about all the time we have today. Charles Berkowitz is our director, senior producer Christopher Taliata. Our producers are Alexa Lim, Christy Taylor, and Katie Heiler. We had technical and engineering help today from Rich Kim, Sarah Fishman, and Jack Horowitz. We're active all week on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, Amazon Echo and Google Home. So you can listen to us every day. Every day is Science Friday. And of course, our email address, scifry at sciencefriday.com, Facebook, Twitter, everything else. I'm Ira Flato in New York.